But one thing I do see missing sometimes is it's kind of the drive and the fact that some of the mindset pointing fingers at others and kind of putting blame elsewhere when for me, you know, the opportunity's there. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great Bus listeners. Today, I have the pleasure to speak to George Abreu. Yes, I have to roll the R's. Being, being of the Indian descent, that helps. Uh, so, George, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate your time, buddy. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Yeah, George is somebody I've been following for a while. I mean, most of you know my journey into multifamily over the last good four or five years. I've dedicated predominantly on building my own way out of my W-2 through multifamily and now doing that as a job as well. And George's journey is an exciting journey. George is a CEO of Elevate Commercial Investment Group and also the JNT Constructions. So what we'll do in this in this episode is I know a lot, I have talked to some of you, but I haven't talked to most of you one-on-one yet. There's a lot happening in multifamily. As you know, my journey, I've been a little bit sitting on the fences for the last one or two years on multifamily itself, more more likely the last year. But the floodgates are going to, my, my theory is, that the thesis is the floodgates are going to open pretty soon here, especially with the recent Fed announcement. I'll, I could be right, it could be wrong. Who knows? If I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be doing podcasts, but I don't. So we'll see where these are, but that's my thesis at least. I'll test it to George as well and see where that goes. George, with that, buddy, I'm going to open up with a question. What does the term migrate to wealth mean to you? Yeah, you know, when I hear that, I think of, kind of think back to to my family, right? Um. Cuban descent. My parents grew up in Cuba, but they both came during their teenage years when Castro took over and pretty much took everybody's land, everything they had. And they came over to the U.S. and you know everybody was just trying to get away from that dictatorship and and be able to create their own wealth, right? And my father started his own business and was able to do that, and a lot of my my family members were able to do the same. And you know when I think of migrate to wealth, that's kind of what I think of the. the the opportunity you have here in the states to to come and whether it's it's not only start your own business right you don't have to be a business owner you you can also work for a business and create that wealth and make some good investments and make the best of it if that's okay if you're okay going there how old were you when family migrated to the US so i was not born in cuba i, I was born in miami you're florida so when you hear the stories from them i don't know if you, i'm assuming you guys have talked about that time in their life Help us understand the delta, the, the, the variance between, because I don't think a lot of folks who have not, now the show is focused on immigration, so I'm pretty sure immigrants, so a lot of people understand it, but just to make sure in case there are folks who have lived outside of their birthplace for majority of their life and have lost perspective, from your parents and discussion with your parents, what's the opportunity cost of not having your freedom? I mean, look, I think I think it's, like you're saying, I think it's hard for some individuals to even comprehend some of the things they went through. So my grandparents, right, their parents, when this happened, they sent off their children. So my, my dad, my mom, yeah. and stayed in Cuba because they, they couldn't, mm-hmm. there was a, it was called the Peter Pan flights. It was a, a church in, in Miami that organized this whole, all these flights and all they were able to send were the kids. So wow, my parents spent years without their parents in the States. You know, and how old were they? Uh, I believe my mother was 
15 and she had a, a younger sister that was maybe 13, 12. Oh my God. And wow. they did have an aunt that had come over to the States. So that's who they ended up staying with. But I mean, you know, to be separated from your parents for years like that. Yeah. I think that goes to show just how bad it was. The fact that so how, um, we need to do that. No, I, I can thank thank you for sharing that insight because I think my, my my mom and dad, I remember they tell me stories about India and Pakistan partition. And my mom's side of the family was Pakistan back then and they migrated to, the, to to India and they lost everything there and they had to restart. But not not as bad as in the separation, at least on my my mom's side, there was no separation. I can only imagine you losing all the possessions and all your money. Now, on top of it, you actually don't even have your parents along with you. And 15, 16, 18, that's a very tender age. That's really where you're trying to have, where you want to have a support system to make sure that you're not feeling low. So, Josh, thank you. Thank you again for sharing that. I appreciate that. Now, let's, let's talk about one thing before we go into the details of the multifamily itself. When you compare your upbringing to some of the folks who probably grew up here with parents or, or their parents had their parents and support system, and maybe multi-generational support. Do you see a difference in how you were brought up versus how they were brought up? Are there, is there a stark difference? I mean, you know, I can't really compare as far as how they were brought up, but uh, one thing I do see missing sometimes is kind of the drive. Yeah. And, and that some of the mindset, you know, pointing fingers at others and kind of putting blame elsewhere when me, you know, we, we, the opportunity's there, right? You, right. you just got to have the drive and, and gain the knowledge and, Take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the hunger, right? It's the hunger to succeed at no matter, at no cost. Uh, at whatever the cost is. Right? So I, I see that all, I've only been here for 20 years and I see that already. Uh, my hunger is dying down if I don't lift it up because it, it all depends on who you're surrounded with, right? When I came here, the hunger was at a different level. And if I don't continuously push myself, it's easy to fall in that complacency saying, I've made it. Well, no one has ever made it uh, because you got to continue pushing yourself. Not That doesn't mean monetarily. That means in every aspect of you may have made it in one, one dimension, but there are multiple dimensions that make it if you ever get there. So George, now let's talk about from coming from a family whose land was taken away by a dictator to now owning real estate uh, with yourself and with, your, with a group of investors. Tell us about that journey. How did you get into real estate? What were you doing before real estate? Or maybe real estate is what you started with. Give us a little bit of picture on that. Sure. So, I mean, I, I studied to be an engineer, electrical engineer. But even through those years, I, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer. I was yeah. just going through the motions because... I don't blame you. I, I, I'm an engineer myself. I'm an industrial engineer, so I know exactly what you feel. <laughs> yeah, I was really good at math. And, you know, that's... I, yeah. I decided to go... There wasn't no real passion there. But... Throughout the years, studying to be an engineer, you know, I did find my passion. That was real estate. You know, I, I studied uh, a lot of different successful um, individuals, and a lot of them either created their wealth through real estate, or once they had their wealth, you know, they magnified it using real estate. So started gaining all that knowledge, and eventually hired a coach, and then you know started doing enough deals where at that time I had graduated and I was working an engineering job, able to quit. My W-2 and start doing, you know, real estate full-time. So how long did it take you from starting at, you said, it, it seemed like you started investing as you were either finished, finishing graduation or while you were in the grad school? Yeah. I mean, it, it was more of the time I spent to kind of figure it out, right? I, I got my real estate license, which I didn't need, but I didn't know what I was doing. I got my broker license. 
practice. Right. You know, kind of learn the industry. And then it wasn't really till I brought on that coach that really kind of led me down the right path. So, I mean, you know, I would say maybe it took me about a couple of years to, mm-hmm. till I did my first deal. And then once I did my first deal, I mean, it was, I've always been quick to kind of implement and take action. So, I mean, after that, it was pretty quick. No, that's awesome. And of course, I think there were a lot of tailwinds at that time when you started. If someone were to start now, they're different. doesn't mean it's, it's good or bad. It's just different. And yeah, yeah. I mean, back when I was going to the uh, Barnes and Nobles or the library. Yeah, exactly. I remember that. But there was a time where there was a complete new real estate section created in Barnes and Nobles. Uh, you knew that real estate is hot at that time when there's a bookstore yeah. that's creating a whole probably 50,000 books there about real estate and everyone's right. telling you how to make money in real estate. So and I definitely remember that. So George, tell us now, you picked an asset class, which is an interesting asset class. And it's, it's, it's probably been tested through periods of time, which is multifamily, right? How did you land into that asset class? Where, which direction did you take the path of, just like myself, a lot of other multifamily guys or gals where they start with a single family, then they realize that it's too hard. Like, I don't want to do this forever. I'm going to go to family. How was your, what was your path? Yeah, I mean. Pretty similar to what you described. Yeah. I started with the single, the single family space. Uh, I did anything and everything you can think of in that space, you know, from, from fix and flips, did a ton of fix and flips, still taught a portfolio, rental portfolio. I um, added some small multi family mm-hmm. at that time as well and kept, kept wanting to scale and scale and scale and, and found yeah. it harder and harder to do more with the single family uh, to the point where, you know, I was finally introduced to, to multifamily syndications and being able to bring investors with us to, to acquire these deals, you know, that's really what opened my mind to, to that side of things. Because before then I was like, man, you need billions to to close on these hundred plus unit apartments. But uh, yeah, everything changed after that. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So let's go into what's happening in the current environment, George. So how, how do you see what's happening in the multifamily? I still believe in the asset class. I don't think the asset class is going anywhere anytime soon, especially when you compare it to real estate invest other real estate opportunities. Not that it's the only asset class, but a pretty strong asset class. So where do you see the as if you're looking at the crystal ball in the next four to six months? And maybe maybe before we even go into the future, let's paint a picture of what has happened over the last year or so so that people can understand that the diametrically opposite things that may have start to happen in the next few months. At least that's my, my prediction. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the asset class has gone through through a lot. It's been tested a lot. Yeah, you know, obviously we had the the eight bubble, which crashed more of the single family space. You know, Correct. There was some issues with the multi, but it survived pretty well through through that time. Then I think you had a uh, COVID was probably the next test, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely when COVID first started, it was there was some issues, some obstacles right. that came up, but right. clearly survived through that. And now the last year or so with the, with the rates rising and all these adjustable loans, adjustable rate loans, probably the biggest obstacle it's had so far, the biggest hurdles that it's had to go through. Uh, you've got a lot of investors on the sidelines. I'm with you, right? I, I still, the demand is there, yeah. right? There's a lot of stress on, on being able to own a single family now and as sure. far as the pricing, how high it's gone. So- that's only created more demand for multifamily. So I think we're still looking at deals. We're still acquiring deals. Nowhere near the, the volume that we were. Yeah. yeah. But we we think it's only going to get better from here as the rates, you know, maybe trickle down a little bit this year. I think 
2025 is going to be a pretty strong year and it's going to keep going up from there. So uh, how are you looking at deals differently right now, George, than you were looking at, let's say, two years ago? Because, of course, the interest rates has changed, right? That has to be accounted into a fact, but that's just math. But how are you looking at these? Are you looking at any levers differently than you were looking before? Absolutely. I think we're being a lot more careful with, with the leverage and yeah. keeping a, a lower leverage on our deals. I mean, even the, the type of deals we're looking at, you know, before it was very heavy lifts, value add, C-class type deals. We'll still take a look at some of those, but as far as where the pricing's at, you know, I think we're, we're mainly doing A-class deals, either straight from developers or just nicer assets that we can hold longer. Yeah. I think it's a long-term play, the multifamily play. You know, anybody that's getting into it for, for this fix and flip and, you know, it worked, right? For, for it worked for, for, years there. for a decade. Really it hard. worked. It worked beautifully for a decade. Right, yeah. right. But the way you sustain the different cycles in real estate is when you have that longer term view. And so, you know, that's kind of how we're looking at things, making sure we've, we've got good debt as we come in, cash flowing asset, good, strong asset in a, in a good location that, that's got growth. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the things. The basic, if I'm hearing you correctly, so the basic parameters have been changed, right? It's got to have the good population growth, good, good employment growth, business-friendly environment, uh, specific median income, especially now, depending upon the asset class you're looking. I think the major shift, it seems, that have happened is really from C-class to A-class. That's really the predominant, the biggest shift, I'm assuming, in your, how you're looking at the deals. Is that correct? Agreed. Yeah. So, now, help us understand that for, for some of the audience may or may not know that. So let's go deeper into that. So when we look at the, 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 biggest, the biggest selling point for a B or C class usually is the cash flow, right? It's a little bit relatively higher cash flow. And you have forced appreciation rather than just a prolonged appreciation just through time. Uh, when I say just through time, it's not just time, time and macro playing together. Right? So the two differences now, when we talk about A-class and, and the typical syndication over the last, if you look at last two or three years itself, uh, the whole time was somewhere between three and five years, three and seven years. I mean, now it's more five and seven for a typical B and C. What about for an A? Is the, the whole time, when you say long term, are we talking longer than seven? Or are we still saying in that five to seven time frame? Still saying about five to seven, but I mean, leaning more towards the, the seven. Yeah. We have a couple that we we've gone in with, with 10-year loans in there as well. So yeah, I would say around the seven, seven years. Seven-ish, yeah. yeah. And then and then what about the cash flow component? Because again, we're going to go compare two years ago, which is no longer valid, but we were getting cash flows for seven, eight, 12, 18% on some of the properties, which is, let's say, ridiculous. But let's say even average it out seven or 8% cash, cash on cash. What do we see? What, what are you seeing on class A right now? Let's say, you know, closer to, to hitting maybe the six to to seven percent cash on top. Yeah. So, you know, to be, I think, successful with, with the A-class assets, you, you've got to be really good at the operation part of it. it. A lot of it is is operating them more efficiently and, and being able to know how to get other income and just really maximize that NOI. And, and the reason for that, just let's give the intuition about that to people is that on a B and C, the lever to push up the income is much higher, right? Because you're starting at a $500 to push it out to $1,200. It's easier because the units are crappy. You bring them to the market for a market quality and their rent increases bungus. Uh, on an A class, you're already, you're already renting at $1,200, $1, which is 
above market average to begin with. And there's not a lot to do in that unit because it's new. Is that the reason why we're saying is instead of focusing predominantly on the income growth, let's try to operate it more efficiently? Is that the reason? Mainly. I mean, we, we do, you know, we're not going to acquire an A-class deal that's, that's top of the market. You know, we are going to look for the ones that are still, there's still that loss to lease. It may not be that 300 to 500, right, that you can get on maybe a C-class, but it's, yeah. it's going to be, you know, 150, 200 around there. And then we're going to maximize it by doing, being more efficient with the operations. Got it. And then, Josh, what, well, you introduced the term recently, a lost lease. Can, can we make sure that we make this show idiot proof so that everyone understands it? Uh, I'm not calling my investors or listeners idiot, but it's always good to understand that. Let's go, let's go bring it to basic. What does lost lease mean? Yeah, well, I'll try to break it down real simple, right? Let's say the market rent is 1200 per unit, but yet your apartment is renting those units for a thousand, right? So you lost a lease of 200 on that unit. And the reason why somebody would do that is because they want to fill up the place. Is that the reason they discounted it? But to all the market- That's one of the reasons. They may not be keeping their finger, <clears throat> their finger on the market rent, right? I see that a lot. You know, we do market rent studies constantly from weekly to no less than monthly for sure. But I mean, usually weekly. Got it. Got it. So, so George- what markets are you focusing on right now as you look forward? Are the markets have not changed for you? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're constantly looking for those, those markets that have a little less competition, right? I mean, we, we look in strong markets too, like Dallas, where I'm out of, you know, we're always looking constantly yeah. in Dallas, but it's got a lot of competition. So right, right. hard to find. You probably have the well most priced. amount, the most number of multifamily in terms of the volume. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of supply as well. And then, you know, some of the markets we've had some good success with, uh, we just closed a deal in Kansas City, We're looking at more stuff there. We've got a few in Northwest Arkansas, Walmart headquarters is. Yeah. We really like that area. We've got uh, several deals in South Dakota, which people get surprised, but they're some of our best performing ones. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's, that market, I can never put my, put my hands on that market. I, maybe, maybe I'm afraid of cold. Uh, <laughs> it could be. I am too, man, but it, you got to go where the money is. Never thought I would own a snow removal equipment. Which yeah, well, South Dakota is probably snowing there for 11 months out of 12, at least in my head. Not, That'll not be that long, there. but yeah. Yeah, it's long. All right. So that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So what do you see as for somebody who has not ever invested in multifamily, right? And they're listening to all the news, all the no, a lot of it is noise. And of course, there's some foreclosures, some, some very prominent foreclosures that have happened recently, but there's not a lot, a few. And the extent of it has been pretty big, uh, but it's not like every every multifamily owner is going foreclosure like the single family owners were going in 2008. So, how do you what what are you telling your investors how to parse out the noise and look forward in a way that's more productive? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there, there's going to be more of these foreclosures coming this year, and and there's a lot of bridge loans that are coming due, and a lot of this stuff gets figured out before it mm -hmm. gets foreclosed as well, right? You know, the the lenders. Are willing to to give a little more and just deals done behind the doors. I'm not saying that there's not going to be more of it out there in the open, but uh, on that end, you, you know, the, what's the alternative, right? Just not making your 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 money work for you, or or putting it in right in the stock market. Or me, when when you compare different tools to to grow your money, you know, multifamily to me is still stands out. Like I mentioned, there's still a high demand for it. I think right, just need to be careful on the deals you're getting into main deal sponsor and what their track record is. and But if you do all your homework on that end, I mean, you should have a good investment. So George, let's talk about that. That's, I think you, you 
So you touched a very interesting point, which is what's their track record for main deal? As you know it, I know it, and most of the people know, most of the deal sponsors came in the last decade. And even a monkey touched a deal in the last decade, it would have made money. So let's not saying not saying that the main deal investors are not smart enough. But again, the question is going to be, if somebody says I have a decade of track record and look what I've done, I've done 30, 40% IRR for my for my investors, how do they parse out? Was it timing? Was it market? Was it the operations? Because at this time, if at this point in time where we're sitting, operations, an operator, a good operator is going to make a break. It's not going to be the time. It, there may be time, but betting on the time is like gambling. We don't want to do that. We want to bet on the right operator. So how do people pass that up? You know, I think it's it's more of asking the right questions as far as kind of getting down to, okay, what who's on that team? You know, how is it a one-man show or a couple individuals that are doing this part-time and they still got a, another job on the side? And it takes a lot to really operate at a high level, these multifamily apartments. It takes a team of people not just one individual. So I would ask questions more on, on that level. Like what, you know, break down your team, show me who's in charge of what, what, what makes you and your team different than, than the rest and, and kind of focus on that and not so much the IRR and what they've done in the past, because you know what, they, they could have played a really small piece in what was done there. True. Um, True. And, and kind of asking about that, look, I've got nothing against maybe a co GP that's partnering with with somebody else that's more experienced, that's fine. But I also want to know who that more experienced person is. Correct. I want to get, you know, questions about them answered and, and whatnot. Not to bypass that code GP, but more to know who's actually handling the the day to day. Yeah. Now as as an as an investor, as a retail investor, of course I have multiple choices. You want to get plugged into the right network, you have multiple choices of which sponsor you want to work with and all that stuff. If I'm going through, let's say somebody who's who's pulling in $5 million versus me contributing $50,000, right? As an individual retail investor, you're not going, you may be putting in $5 million, but chances are you're doing 25, 50, 100, depending upon what your capabilities are. Somebody who's coming in with $5 million raise versus somebody who's investing $50,000, is the due diligence difference different? Because the question of the question a $25,000 investor is going to ask could serve as more of a headache for our main sponsor, right? And I'm, I'm using these terms very liberally. It doesn't mean it's a headache. It's just that if you're asking them thousand questions, at some point they're going to ask the question, okay, how much are you thinking of putting in? And if you're going to say $25,000, chances are they're going to say that, let's talk after the deal is done because we need to close this deal and I'm happy to answer all the questions. Versus somebody, if you're going with a group who's investing in five, seven, ten million million, chances are they either have already asked those questions or they have the power to negotiate at least get to the answer for this. Okay, so are you are you comparing a an investor that's going to invest fifty thousand to an investor that's going to invest five million? Is that what you're saying? To investor who's going with a co GP who's going to invest five million dollars, right? So okay, so uh, kind of like a fund of a fund, in, in fund a of a fund model, or even a, a yeah, it's more like a fund of fund. That's a that's a better model. So I think the reason question the question gen the genesis of the question really is due diligence, the level of due diligence that a fifty thousand investor can do versus a fund of fund can do. For sure. I mean, a fund of fund can, when you're coming in with more money into a deal, you can usually not not only ask more questions, but I mean, you can even get better terms. Well, sense. you maybe even get some some different rights 
built in. So I definitely think it gives you more power coming in with, with more money. But, you know, us, we would still answer all the questions, no matter how much you're coming in with, you know, we, we try to build, it's a long-term relationship for us. So, I mean, right. we want the investor to feel comfortable. You know, if it's their last $25,000 or $50,000, that's, that's usually not the investors we're, we're looking for, you know, definitely. not that we won't take something of that level, but it's, it would be more of, we want to try you out kind of, and you know, they, they right. have some other funds to invest, but yeah, to your point, I mean, definitely if, if somebody's coming in with 5 million, they, they can ask for more than somebody that's coming in. So what are some of the basic questions you, as an investor, as a retail investor, that they should uh-huh. ask? When we talked about biggest one is the track record, right? Uh, and within track record, let's say if somebody is saying, I started about three years ago, but in the past they have sold a company worth $50 million. Does that translate to track record in operations in multifamily? Or it has to be a multifamily to multifamily operations? No, I mean, look, a, a smart businessman is, is, or businesswoman is definitely good for the track record. If they've exited a company that goes to show that they were able to build something and exit yeah. from it successfully. I would still want to know more about their current team. Like how do they plan to operate this property and, and yeah. do they have property management in-house? They don't, that's fine. But how do they asset manage, right? How do they, are they going to make sure that the third party property manager performs? What are they going to do on a weekly basis, daily basis? Sure. How much time are they going to sacrifice towards this? And so, I mean, those, those are the questions that I would focus on mainly. Yeah. I think that makes sense. That makes sense, George. George, what are you focusing on right now in terms of your, because I know you got construction going on there. You got the acquisition going on there. How are you spending your time and where do you see the most amount of opportunities right now? You know, a lot of the, the time being spent is on our existing portfolio, making sure we, we've got everything lined up and ready to, to have successful exits. You know, we were gearing up for a couple exits coming up, a couple refinances. We're maneuvering a lot of things within our portfolio. Yeah. We are, like I said, we're, we're constantly still looking at acquisitions. We just closed one before the end of the year. And looking for for our next one here shortly. As far as the construction, we, we also have property management in house as well. You know, there those are more tools to to make sure that we're successful with our investments and our properties. And those, you know, we've just building out the team and and making sure I've got everybody in the right seats there. And yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, thank you, George. Appreciate it, man. George, we're coming towards the end of our show here, so uh, we're going to switch gears. So the first question I would ask you is, towards the end, in the last segment is, there is a 15-year-old, 20-year-old George listening to this show somewhere. What's one insight that you would love to share with them or her that could change the trajectory of their life? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm just thinking back to, to my road here, and I would probably tell them that, you know, real estate is a great industry to go into. I would maybe tell them to skip some of the years spent in single family. Yeah. <laughs> and focus a little bit more on on you know, building out the the multifamily portfolio. The focus on on really surrounding themselves with a good team. Um, that it's you can only go so far by yourself, right? And yeah. and you've got to find that team and and really build around around it. And that's it. You know, just tell them to go down that path, and and a lot can be done. Yeah, and I agree, man. I agree. Skip the skip the multi, skip the single family, skip the fix and flip. Go to multifamily. Yes. Scale. Scale is where the chat, where the focus needs to be, and scale is much easier, uh, relatively speaking. We're not. I'm not saying it's easy. It's easier, right, in multifamily than single family, for sure. Agreed. So, George, the next question is going to be a little bit more abstract question. As you interact with 
your investors, as you interact back at your life, where do you see where do you see humanity as a whole migrating towards in the next few decades? Man, that's a deep that's a deep question there. At humanity, you know, there's things that I see, especially in the workforce and just, you know, building out the team that I've been talking about, right? Yeah. Kind of some of the mind changes on on newer generations. You know, there's things I don't agree with that social media has done. You know, everybody yeah. kind of being fake on on their social media and whatnot. It's obviously done great things for for businesses, being able, able to offer education and things like that. But uh, I don't know, you know our, our education system, I think is is broken as well. You know, I, I would love to see some major changes in that, which I, I feel like there's a lot of stress on that right now. So I, yeah. I hope we can get there. But when I say that, just, you know, basic education that in, individuals should have when they leave high school or even college right. that we're not taught. So I don't know. I, I hope we can get rid of some of this fake stuff on, on social media and, and yeah. go back to maybe some, building some real relationships and maybe focus on the things we should be getting educated on. Love that. Thank you. Thank you, George. And I completely agree with that. I think that true relationships, you can't build deep, true relationships on social media. You got to get off the phone. You got to yeah. get off. You have to meet people in a coffee shop, go see movies with them. Do, do more things that you're seeing face to face. It's easy to hide behind the keyboard uh, or, or a phone, phone key, virtual keyboard. It doesn't matter if it's real or virtual. So I completely agree with you. George, one last comment before we go into your contact information is going to be, is there any question I should have asked you that you feel I did that's going to benefit our listeners? You know, I, I would throw in there, even in the in the real estate industry and, and all the different asset classes within real estate, if somebody who's looking to get more into it, I would just tell them to, to pick an asset class and, and really focus on it. And when I say asset class, I don't just mean A class or C class or right. multifamily. I mean, multifamily, single family, commercial, right. you know, whatever it is. And really conquer one of those first, right? Then maybe start looking to different ones. But I do see there's a lot of noise and a lot of shiny objects out there. But Social media I would say focus doesn't help. Focus is yes, yes. <laughs> focus is very, very important when you're trying to build a business. Yeah, I love that. I love that, George. Thank you again. Thank you again for sharing. George, where can people find you? Where can people look more into your work and learn of the year Yeah, I mean, if they go to our website, which is Elevate CIG. Stands for Commercial Investment Group, so elevatecig.com. We've got a bunch of free content you can get on there. Um, if they want to shoot me an email, George or Jorge, J-O-R-G-E, at elevatecig.com. They can say that they heard me on this podcast and I can send over pretty much a vault of free content. I usually appreciate that, George. Thank you again, man. I will make sure all the information is included below. George, but thank you again for coming on the show. I know you're a busy man. So I appreciate you taking about an hour of your time and sharing your insights with our, with our audience. All good. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Hold on one second, George. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.